I so appreciate Natasha. She um, walked up and said, what are you learning in Romans? And then she didn't let me answer. She told me what I should have been learning. I think this is good. I think it's a good takeaway. Make sure I get this right. What we've learned so far in three chapters is it's the gospel, stupid, and there's a lot of big buts. Did I get that right? People are, well, anyway, I don't know if you get offended by me saying there's lots of big butts, but I know one person who was right because Jim told me this testimony. They were at Tybee Island. They were out on the balcony watching the service online when I was saying that I'd be at the beach next week and Seth would be talk, teaching about big butts. And when the service was over, you said you closed the laptop and like two or three balconies down, somebody said, what kind of church do you go to? <laughs> So, might not resonate with y'all, but it's catching somebody's attention online. <laughs> All right. Romans chapter 4. I told Russ in the back we'd probably go through verse 12, so I'm going to read through verse 12. And then I thought we might not get through verse 8, and I thought we might not get past verse 3. But can we just read all 12 anyway? I'll read it for you. Um, but why don't we stand up and while we read it. Are y'all okay with, me, with us standing when, when I read the Bible? And then I started thinking, sorry, if you're new here, this is the way my mind works. Just buckle up and hang on. I kept thinking, if I have you stand for the reading of the main portion, then why don't I also have you stand every time I read a scripture? I'm kidding. I won't do that to you. Here we go. You're welcome. You've got really big thighs. I go to the gathering. Romans chapter 4. The le leg muscles, leg muscles, you're toned. That's, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Y'all, y'all okay? See, see, it's the, it, what is Wendy saying? She cut him off. Is that what you're Are you doing this? <laughs> when, when Mike and I and Kyle wear the almost the identical Hawaiian shirt, it's called the anointing, y'all. It's going to be a day, right? It's going to be a day. Romans chapter 4, first time visitors, I hope you come back. <laughs> We, we really are a lot of fun, and we do love Jesus. Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say that, that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, anybody got a job? Raise your hand. When a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Again, some of you might be very lost. This is all referring back to the first three chapters. He's been showing that all of us, none of us can earn our salvation, right? And so he ended chapter 3 saying, like, it's credited to a righteousness apart from the gospel, apart from the law has, has been revealed. That's Jesus, right? So he's trying to show that we don't earn it. Blessed are, those, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Can I get an amen from anybody who's saved? 
Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Mm. Is this blessed only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? If you're keeping track, this is reference 3,000 to circumcision in the first couple chapters. It feels like, feels like, I see what I said there. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstance? Hold on. I just realized I've underlined that verse and I actually went through the words. That's fantastic. Let me find it here. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before, right? And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he's the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. That is a lot about circumcision. Just remember that that was the sign of the covenant with the people of God. Okay, that was the sign of the covenant. Paul writes through all of his letters about circumcision of the heart, right? So he's referring back to like, hey, they're, my, they're, they're God's people, and here's how people knew that, because they had the law and they were circumcised. He's done this for the first three chapters. That's why he keeps referencing it all through here. But if you're like, first time here, you've never read Romans, you're kind of like, what is that about? That's what it's about. Okay, we're going to talk through this. So, Father, help us right now for the next few moments to hear your truth. Help me to clearly communicate it. And the things I say that you don't need, get rid of them, I pray. Speak to our souls in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to the person next to you and say, this is going to be fantastic. You can sit down. I'm so... Over, the next, over this whole next chapter, chapter 4, and I'm not sure how long it'll take to get through this chapter. We're not in any rush. This is a relaxed, laid-back road trip. Um, Paul's going to talk a ton about faith. So um, today, I just want to make sure that we have a grasp on what faith is. So um, we use that word a lot. I brought a video so we can watch it and maybe see if this helps us understand faith from a biblical perspective. Faith, the final frontier. These are the voyages, no, it's ridiculous, although that's where most people take this topic, to science fiction. Faith, what is it really? A magic feeling that we get to help us through tough times? A mystical bridge between fact and fiction? Is it really blind? Is it a word we use when we can't explain ourselves? Is it real on any level? Well, let's investigate, hypothetical. A person says to you, I sure do wish I could believe in millibuggins like you do, I just don't have that kind of faith. Well. What that person is really saying is that millibuggins aren't real, and you are the type of person who believes in unreal things, and it takes this strange faith thing that not many other people have for you to get there. Okay, in the nicest way possible then, this person is calling you insane, or at best just a little nutty. So you have this odd capability of believing in something you desperately wish to be true, but you just can't be sure if it is. However, since it makes you feel better, it's worth it for you. Well, that pretty much sums up what faith means to most people. In other words, the stronger your faith, the more ridiculous the belief must be. Because after all, a little faith helps you believe in things that probably aren't true. So then a really powerful faith will be the kind of faith you absolutely know something isn't true, but you still believe it anyway. Thus, faith is reduced to some blind anecdotal act that magically suspends disbelief of reality in order to make you feel better. But, you gotta wonder, 
Is this really the kind of faith the Bible talks about? Let's look at the word again, okay? Let's refocus. The Bible refers to faith really in only one way. It's like this. Suppose I say, I have faith that my friend will repay me the 10 bucks he owes me on Saturday because he said he would. See, there's nothing strange about that faith that nobody would fault me for having it if they knew my friend. Because what I'm saying essentially are three things. One, my friend is real. Two, he's trustworthy. And three, which is really a subset of two, I believe one and two because I have a relationship with my friend. Now for just a second, let's get morbid to make a critical illustration. What if my friend died on the way to give me my 10 bucks back? He didn't come through. No matter how much faith I had in him, how real and completely trustworthy he may have been, he didn't have the power to live up to my faith. Was he really any less trustworthy or any less real? No. But the person or object on which I place my faith is an essential part of how strong my faith should be. I mean, how much faith do you have that your two-year-old basset hound can drive your new Lexus to the bank and bring you back $1,000 in 20s? None, I hope. But now, turn that analogy of my friend and your dog toward God, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, and incapable of lying, and ask yourself this. On whom does it make the most sense to place your greatest faith? Well, I'll tell you. Anyone who has a right relationship with God, and quite honestly, anyone who doesn't, knows he is the only one capable of doing everything he says, the only one with the knowledge of the future, the only one who understands everything, the only one who really knows you, and the only one who has revealed through nature and his word who he is and what he's done, how much he loves you, and why he is the only completely trustworthy one there is. Got it? Good. In summary then, faith in God is always a response to truth and reality and has nothing to do with blind leaps, the USS Enterprise, or wishful thinking. Trust me. He talks fast. So let's talk about um, two things that faith is not, okay? F what faith is not. It's not believing in ourselves. Faith is not believing in ourselves. It's not thinking that we can do it. It's not thinking that we can earn it. If we've got nothing out of the first three chapters, surely we have seen that we are not good enough, Right? We were um, at a 50th anniversary party last night. We're sitting around this, this table. We're all telling stories. And eventually we all started telling stories about the, the stupid, can I say that word? Um, I said it's the gospel stupid. So about these stupid things that we used to do to try to like cheat people out of things, get things. So I, I told my story about how when I was in middle school, back then it was called junior high, I would leave. We'd walk down to the corner market to buy Cokes, and I, I would spend hours shaving a penny down to the size of a dime so I could just put in three cents to get a drink. By the way, that does work. Then my friend convinced me that the police check the coins and they can run fingerprints off those coins. <laughs> so I only did it that one time because my friend really scared me. But we're telling these stories, and it was like, I kept thinking, man, Romans, Romans 3 is true, isn't it? When it says in 3.23 that, like, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. When it says in Romans 3.10 that there's no one righteous, no, not one. And we want to read that and go, that is so true about everybody else. Y'all, faith is not about us believing in ourselves and it's not about believing in faith. Y'all know anybody who's in love with love? They're in love with the idea of love. They're always talking about romance. That's not a bad thing. But it's like you listen to them talk and you realize they're not looking for a person. They're looking for a feeling. Right? This is not having faith 
in faith. Where are my 80s people at? Because you got to have faith. Right, George Michael? Right? He was wrong. He only got it half right. You don't just have to have faith. You have to have faith in the right thing. Faith matters, but the object of our faith matters more. So this is called objective faith, right? Just a big term, objective faith and subjective faith. you got to have objective faith. And before we even turn back to the Bible, I want to remind you that every one of you operate in objective faith on the daily. Parents of teenagers, raise your hand. I bet this has happened to you. I know it's happened to us. When you saved up your money and you went to the furniture store and you bought a new couch, you brought it home, or maybe you got a big, like, like one-and-a-half-size chair, you brought it home, you set it in the den, and you're looking out like, this is fantastic, and your teenager came in, and they either plopped down with all their force onto that new piece of furniture, or they didn't sit in it like the normal way. They sat this way, legs over the arm, head on the arm. Or they just sat on the arm while they bounced up and down. And you had this sense of panic because you know that furniture is not made the way it used to be made. And you're like, I just spent a lot of money on that. Why? That's, that's the crisis of faith, yes? You have faith in the chair you're sitting in right now. That it will hold you up even if you don't sit in it the right way. And some of you are not sitting in it the right way. If you, if you sat on it and had people get on top of you, you have faith that that chair will hold you up. You have faith that when you approach an intersection and see a green light, you have faith that on the other side of the light that you can't see, that it also now shows a red light. You have objective faith in that so much so that you don't stop the car at a green light to get out, to check, to make, yeah, we're good, it's red, and go back through. We operate in objective faith all the time. You have faith that if you press the brakes in your car, it'll stop. You have objective faith. You have faith in something outside of you all the time. But then when it comes to God, right, what do we do? Well, it's, I, have, I have faith in me to save me. I figured at this point we might look a little strange so I'm going to show you one more movie clip. I've tried to dumb it down a little bit. I tried to pick a clip that we would all be able to understand. I must say to you guys that are watching on YouTube, you're going to have to go dark because this is from an actual movie. And so we can't show it there because of copyright issues. But you guys in the house, I think, I hope, I'm praying that this makes you understand the difference between objective faith and subjective faith. Here we go. In chapter 4, you've got to remember that Paul's writing to Jews and Gentiles, right? And so he's been talking a lot to the Jews. He's talking to the Jews again. Remember that this letter was written to believers, right, to all the saints in Rome. 
and, and what he's showing them is, like, they want to say, hey, whoa, 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 Abraham did stuff. He worked to get the sign of the covenant. He worked to be chosen by God. And Paul's showing them, and you can go back to Genesis and read the whole story in chapter 15, but he's showing them that, no, Abraham believed God before he was called righteous. And so verse 3, which is what I want you to see today, says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so if we were in the church in Rome and we were hearing this letter for the first time, we would have had a Buzz Lightyear moment, even though we wouldn't have known who Buzz Lightyear was. Because we would have heard the first three chapters and we would have come face to face with truth. And the truth would be, you're not as good as you think you are. You are not a toy. I mean, you're just a toy, right? And he thought he was like legitimately going to fly. And even when he was presented with crystal clear evidence that he was just a toy, could not fly, he still was like, no, if I believe it, it'll happen. If you believe it, you'll achieve it. This is all in our culture. It's all about us working up as much faith as we possibly can. But I'm telling you, you can have all the faith in the world, put it in the wrong object, and it will not save you. A little bit of faith in really thick ice, you're going to be dry. A whole lot of faith in really thin ice, you're probably going to get wet. It's not about the quantity. It's about where you place it. And I, I, I see broken believers everywhere because they have tried to earn it, convince themselves that they can do it. We have self-talked ourselves into brokenness. And what Paul's saying to the Romans and what he's saying to us is time out. Where are you putting your faith? Jews, you've put it in the law. Tried to keep all those rules? That's not working out. Gentiles, you've put it in the light. You've all the things you see, and you're not living up to that. He's like, none of that's working because you've got all your faith in the wrong place. So put it in God. And, and last week, Seth preached on this, but verse 22 says, This righteousness from God comes through faith in whatever you want to put it in. Is that what it says? It says it comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. To all who believe. Jews, Gentiles, people that were raised in church, people that were not raised in church, everybody who puts their faith in Jesus becomes righteous. It's all about the object of our faith, and it's all about deciding will we place our faith in Jesus. Last story, and then we'll pray. There was a man named Charles Blondin. Some of you may have heard this story, but in the late 1800s, he was a tightrope artist. Is that what you call them? He walked on high tightropes. Yeah, 
well, no, because he didn't jump off them. Hmm. He went to Niagara Falls, and he, he had a rope placed from the United States side of Niagara Falls to the Canadian side. This is the late 1800s. He, they was all advertised he's going to walk across that tightrope. And so for, for multiple days, he would show up, and he would walk across. He would do tricks. And they, these huge crowds gathered on each side of the falls. It's like I, I, I looked up. He, like, pushed um, us. One time he pushed he walked across on stilts. One time he went across on a bicycle. They said he went across pushing a stove and then stopped in the middle and fixed an omelet. This guy's insane, right? And then one day, he was on the Canadian side. He grabbed a wheelbarrow, and he walked. This is a tightrope above Niagara Falls, right? He walked backwards with the wheelbarrow from the Canadian side to the United States side. And when he got to the U.S. side, everybody went crazy, just, just erupted, like, you're amazing. And he was like, how many of you believe that I could push this wheelbarrow with somebody in it? Yeah, you're amazing. You can do it. Can I get a volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow? Total silence. I need you to understand something. A lot of people believe in what Jesus did, but not as many people are actually putting the faith of their whole life in what Jesus did. James chapter 3, 2 verse, verse 19 says, you believe in God? Great. Even the demons believe. Wait, wait, that's not what it says. Everybody look at me. Demons have more faith and more belief in the truth than Christians do. Here's what the verse says. You believe in God? Good. Even the demons believe and tremble. The church doesn't even tremble at the truth of God anymore. That's how far removed we are. That's how far we've, we've bought into the lie that somehow we can work it up in, in ourselves. Back to the race from California to Hawaii. I don't care how good you can swim. You're not swimming all the way to Hawaii. We can't make it. We need a Savior. And that's what Paul's going to talk about in Romans chapter, chapter 4. The faith that we must place in the right person. His name is Jesus. And that faith placed in Jesus is what saves us. Not how we act. Not what we do. Did I do more good than bad? Because it takes perfection, and only Jesus was perfect. And at the end of the day, what Paul's going to say is, because you've placed your faith in Jesus, that should actually change how you live. And that's where the Jews would get hung up. But wait, Abraham, he got circumcised. In our terminology, he went to church. He did the things that made him look like a Christian. And what Paul's going to say in this letter and in almost every other letter he wrote, he's going to say, you're not saved by your works. You're saved through faith in Jesus, and your works prove that. It's a big difference, which is why we talk about repentance all the time. Are y'all sick of that word? I hope not. I think repentance is the most wonderful word that we have in the Christian faith. Because it means that every day his mercy is new. Every day 
I can wake up and say, God, oh, man, I blew it yesterday, but thank you that today I can choose to follow. I'm choosing to follow you. You didn't reject me because of what I did yesterday. You actually offered me to change today. And the world is looking to the church to see if there's any validity to what we say is true. And, and some of the most heartbreaking conversations you'll ever have are with people that, that like, they'll say, like, I want to believe it. But I, I've got these Christian neighbors. They're awful. They don't look anything like Jesus. They'll break your heart. Because here's the reality. And this just drives people crazy. It goes against our fair-mindedness. Our fair minded, there are people who are going to live horrible lives that are going to be in heaven. Because they're going to place their faith in Jesus. And there are people who are going to live much better lives than that who are going to go to hell because they did not. And our only response to God about that is, that's not fair. What kind of God would do that? Said the God who would sacrifice his son to make a way for bad people like me to go to heaven. And the question is, who will get in the wheelbarrow? Who will really trust Jesus? And I could, I could rail that hard to people in the room that aren't following Jesus or people that are watching online that aren't following Jesus, but I'd rather pose the question to believers, right? To, to us in the church that people are watching, can I ask you this question? Are you willing to go all in, to get in that wheelbarrow and say three words that will change every area of your life if you mean them. Jesus is Lord. And when you get in the wheelbarrow and say, Jesus is Lord of every part of my life, it changes how you spend your money. It changes where you spend your money. It might change where you live. It changes how you attend church. It changes all the things that people look at you doing, and it also changes how you talk to those people. Like, you don't have to do these things to be a Christian. We do these things because we're Christians, because we're following the way of Jesus, and we watch how he lived his life, and then we model ours after him because we want to look like Jesus. So what is faith? Faith is taking whatever I have, either a little bit or a lot, and placing it in the person of Jesus, in the wheelbarrow, and saying, I trust you. I trust you to carry my life. I trust every part of my life to who you are. That is biblical faith. And we don't earn it because of what we do. We display it through what we do. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. Why don't you just close your eyes and just take a minute, just kind of breathe. Exhale and just let, let if you're willing, 
It's a dangerous prayer, but if you're willing, ask the Holy Spirit to examine you right now. Like we've said in the first three chapters, the point of the bad news is not to shame us, to make us feel horrible. The point of the bad news is to set us up for the good news. And when Jesus says things and Paul says things like, hey, all the things you're trying aren't going to work, he's not trying to like, kill our joy, crush the good things that we have in our life. He's trying to show us that our only hope of lasting joy and salvation is Jesus. So I would ask two groups of people in the room to contemplate putting your faith in Jesus biblically. One would be, if you're here this morning, you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. If you're watching online, I would encourage you to choose to follow Jesus today. It's so much more than just a choice, but everything changes because of that choice. Okay, yes, God, I choose today to follow you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust the work that Jesus did on the cross. That's going to save my soul. It's also going to change how I live when I leave here. I'm starting a journey with Jesus. And into the believers in the room, I would just ask you to be courageous enough to allow the Holy Spirit, as, as was written in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you pray that prayer right now, then here's what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to begin to search your heart like you just prayed. And he's going to begin... This is his job. His job is to point you to Jesus. And he's going to show you areas of your, of your life that you may not be allowing the Lord to be Lord of. He's going to say, oh, oh right there, Paul. There, there's a spot. And let's, let's take care of that so that Jesus can shine through that area even more. I'm telling you, believers, if you pray that prayer, you will begin to look more like Jesus because your faith is now in him and not in your ability to do the right thing. And this is called examination. This is called repentance. This is how sanctification works. Really big words. It just means that on the daily, we are asking the Holy Spirit to make us more like Jesus. And for those in this room and those that are watching online that have made that decision, God, I pray right now that the scripture verse that says that the Holy Spirit is looking throughout the whole world to find hearts that are committed so that he can fully support them. I pray that in this place now, that we would sense your Holy Spirit coming behind and beside us and supporting us in this decision to walk the ways of Jesus. And that we could say like Paul said about Abraham, that today we believed in God and it was credited to us as righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. In the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.